Hey listeners, today's episode deals with the topic of racial violence. We wanted to notify our listeners who may experience trauma related to that topic ahead of the episode and to let you know that resources are listed on the website. Thanks for listening. In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. Hi. Hey. Oh, gosh, it feels like forever. I know. Tell me about it. it Even though we does. had our little double date on Wednesday. That was cute. That was cute. We had Matt and I had a little Skype date. And we got to tour Matt and Davy's New Jersey home, mm-hmm. and we heard about a cute babbling brook behind their apartment complex. Mm-hmm. Very at, cute. I can listen to a babbling brook and hear a song that I can understand. That's from Alice, that... Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> okay, I was going to say, is that from something? Yeah, yeah. I feel like there's a lot of musicals that other people are, like my musical oh. reference starts and ends with Chicago. And everyone else has, like, Into the Woods and Wicked and Hamilton and all these shows that I've never seen. Not even Dreamgirls? We've talked about this before, Matthew. I've never seen Dreamgirls. And I know I need to. I know. I know. Get a grip. (laughs) I'll work on it, okay? All right, all right. I mean, we we all have things to work on, right? (laughs) (laughs) So... Let's listen. Last week I brought up the item of Midnight Mass and mm. you had yet to finish it. Have you finished it? I certainly have. All right. Here we go. On a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being really bad, 10 being one of the best things you've ever seen. Where would you rate it? I would say really high. I would say 8.59 territory. Okay. I think I'm the only person in the world who hated it. (gasps) Wow, that is shocking. I know, I know. Okay, so listen, I don't know if I was just like grumpy while I was watching it or I didn't pay enough attention, but I was just really, two things really irritated me. One, I never cared enough about any of the characters. And so for me, it felt like at the end I was like, why did like why who cares why did i watch this mm-hmm. i didn't find anyone interesting or likable and then there was just the sheer volume of themes in this show which i would i wrote down a list if you haven't seen midnight mass and you plan to watch it and you do not want spoilers skip ahead like 2 minutes okay okay yeah yeah so one of the things i found really frustrating was there was just so many things happening in the show that it felt messy and like they didn't know what they were trying to do so okay so for example if this show involved werewolves one of the things i would talk about w- would be just like the theme of werewolves so i don't think i'm spoiling anything for anyone by just listing the themes in it but here we go ready mm. angels Blood sucking, reverse aging, spontaneous combustion, healing of paralysis, killing a child drunk driving, super healing powers, a lengthy scientific explanation of magic that serves no purpose, burning down a city, ghosts, hundreds of dead cats washing up on the beach, a dog murdered by poison, Islamophobia, mass poisoning, and coming back from the dead. I, okay, I think you're being very generous by calling these themes and not just some things that happen in this in this show <laughs> there are i mean listen like that's the whole thing is the whole time 
unlike Bly Manor and Haunting of Hill House, where I was kind of like, okay, I get sort of thematically what this is about. It's about like haunting and or being like trapped um, in like a perpetual cycle of repetition or whatever. Midnight Mass, I was like, is there a monster eating people? Is there a plague? Is there like it? It was it just. It left mm. me guessing, but not in a, like, intrigued way. Just a, like, what is this about kind of way. And then at the end, Matthew, everybody dies. That's not true. Everyone dies except not for two everyone. children. Mm-hmm. Okay. Two children escape. I would say I found several of the characters very compelling. So I was invested in at least two of them right away. And then even the ones I didn't like, I I enjoyed watching them and seeing their character arc. And I would say the themes for me were more like uh, religion. Yeah, sure. Yes. Sin and the way we interpret sin. Okay. And the way in which people will bend things and beliefs to their own personal viewpoint in order to reconcile their own issues and their own inner demons. And then I I would say it had themes of like vampiria or whatever you want to call it. Uh I don't think that was too much. I think it was very, and it's also based on an Edgar Allan Poe book or story I read. Really? Mm -hmm. Which one? Okay, I didn't read the Edgar Allan Poe story. I read that it was based on an Edgar Allan Poe story is what I mean. Um, I don't remember the name of it, but it's pretty, if you just look look it up on Wikipedia, you'll find it pretty quickly. But um, it's called the Fall of the House of Usher. There you go. <laughs> Usher. And I thought, <laughs> hey, <laughs> oh no, it's yay, it's yeah, I said yeah, hey, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I thought it was really interesting. You know, I have a lot of a very complicated history of religion and stuff in my sure. my family, so I really found many of the characters very real, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. I found a lot of the characters very real, and I saw a lot of things that I, I mean, in a very, like, more bombastic way in the show, obviously, but yeah, yeah, I yeah. saw a lot of those characters that very much mirrored people that I've spoken to at length. Some of them you yeah. related to. Um, and I just thought it was very interesting to see a show take the idea of people taking their personal beliefs and finding ways to interpret their viewpoints, Uh reconciling it in a way that makes them feel good. And I liked the way that they took that and molded it around religion. Yeah. And I liked the way that they sort of like mirrored things like magic and vampires with Mm -hmm. like interpreting that to be biblical almost. I thought that was really interesting. And I, here's the thing. I would be super down with all of those themes. It just felt like the... It felt like up until the last episode where suddenly every everything just goes fucking off the rails that I was like, what is this even about? Like, it just... Mm-hmm. If it was just... It felt like the whole magic element of it was peppered in in a really strange way that didn't add anything up until the last episode when suddenly it was, oh, the priest found an angel, supposedly, but it was actually a vampire and things are ruined, blah, blah, blah. You know, that, if that had been brought in sooner, I think I would have found it really interesting, but it just felt like they gave me. I felt like that was clear early on. 
Like episode three. I would say episode three. That what? was pretty clear. What? Yes. No. Lies. Uh, li- listeners, go out and watch it and let us know. I want to know your, your hot, hot takes on this. Yeah. Are you a Matt or an N in this situation? <laughs> let us know. <sighs> okay. Well, on to a more fun topic. Mm-hmm. I have an Instagram account that I have started following that I sent you the link to and you never responded <laughs> so thank you um but yeah so rupee core the poet who like their thing is kind of typography with like sketchy illustration kind of stuff and they're very very popular but there's an instagram account and their book is called milk and honey one of their books <laughs> And there's an Instagram account called Milk and Don't Call Me Honey. And it is real house quotes from the real housewives formatted as Rupee Core poems. And it is fucking hilarious. I have not seen the account, but I've, I saw the, the ones you sent me and I did think they were hilarious. And I apologize so that I did not. Res- <laughs> what, what, what were you saying in the other podcast you were going to say? You did not respond to my pigeons or. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You didn't respond to my pigeons that I sent. Oh, I thought I think it's hilarious, and I love it's that it's so milk good. and don't call me honey because it's a yes. New Jersey throwback. Yeah, the iconic Danielle Staub Teresa fight. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course. Um, then the last thing that I will mention today is remember last week I covered the case of George Tyndall, the U.S. Ugh. the gynecologist at USC. Ugh, yes. <laughs> Well, it's so funny because in that story, I mentioned that there was like another dean who was smoking meth and hiring sex workers. And just the next day, I think after we recorded that, I came across in like the current news, another headline about USC. And the headline says, uh, LA City Councilman and ex-USC dean indicted in federal corruption probe. And apparently he, as like a city councilman, like schemed to get lucrative contracts sent to USC if they gave his son a scholarship and a professorship. So the Uh, corruption with the deans at USC just seems to continue every single day. Yikes. So anyway, I just thought that was funny that that popped up the next day. Also... The 500th episode of Law & Order SVU aired this week, or airs this week. I don't know if it'll be before or after this episode, but right around here. I am still watching Law & Order SVU. I watched the first episode of this new season so far, but I haven't caught up yet. I think there's like two or three more. Gotcha. But speaking of Law & Order news, did you see Mm. that it's Law & Order, the original Law & Order, is being revived? What? I know. It has been announced on September 28th, NBC announced... That Law and Order is coming back for season twenty-one, I think. Whoa! I know it's gonna pick up. You know why? The same kind of format it left off on, but there's no word yet on cast if it's being announced yet. But I would like to take credit and say that our podcast has revived the interest and passion in the original <laughs> Law and Order, and I, that's why they're bringing it back. I agree, a hundred percent. I also wanted to say, yes. I've been. Listening to Sinisterhood like crazy, catching up, Great. almost current again. Almost current. I'm in the Free Britney episode, so I'm like Ooh. mid-pandemic world. Um, I was listening to episode 110 the other day, but there's a moment that I want to point out to you. Okay. In the middle of the episode, they're talking about how 
they feel old for some reason for a reference they put out. I forgot what the mm. reference was. They're like, oh, we feel like we're 67 years old for saying this. Oh, no. Uh-huh. And Christy goes, I know. Uh, the other day, I literally ate grape nuts. <gasps> Shut up. And I almost passed out. Oh, so, my God. A, you have a, a fellow grape nut on the Center for <sighs> podcast because she likes them, even though she says they're not grapes or nuts, and she's not even sure what they are. But she eats grape nuts. But I want to just point out <laughs> the whole reason it came up is because they were feeling like they were... <laughs> In their geriatric days. So <laughs> I, number one, that this validates my feelings that I'm a Christie, but <laughs> item number two, I need to tweet them about that because that's really funny. And item number three about that is I cannot tell you the number of texts and messages that I have received being like, you two are still talking about grape nuts. <laughs> I can't believe I'm the one. I thought you'd be delighted that I was the one to bring it up finally. I'm thrilled. <laughs> Thank you. And on my Sinisterhood kick, um, I want to recommend a documentary that they recommended um, that I <laughs> subsequently watched. It's the Lorena Bobbitt documentary series on Amazon Prime. Okay. So I remember when the Lor- Lorena Bobbitt case happened. Yes, same. And similarly to the, you know... Britney Spears stuff and Monica Lewinsky mm, and all of mm-hmm. this stuff. I had a very, very skewed view of the situation at the time. A hundred percent. Same. And after listening to their several part series on the Reina Bobbitt and then watching the, I think it's three part documentary on Amazon Prime. Maybe it's four. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I had no idea. I had no idea what Lorena yeah. went through. I had no Oh my God. No and clue. she just got massacred in the press. And I mean, I... Until that day, when I listened to that podcast, if someone had brought her up, I would have been like, oh, yeah, like, crazy lady, like, cut her husband's dick off and threw her out the window. That's it. I remember, like, that's exactly how I felt. And I had no idea. And I had no idea what a total trash box of a person she was married to. Yeah, awful. And the funny thing, not the funny thing, but just thinking about how prevalent that narrative was like it became she became like a a running joke in like media and tv and forever and like Mm -hmm. oh you know don't piss off your wife she's gonna pull a Lorena Bobbitt like it got to that level and it's just such a skewed narrative yeah I just thought so anyone out there I would highly recommend listening to the Sinisterhood episodes about it if you want a quicker take on it I think it's two episode arc um or the the four-part series on Amazon Prime it's called Lorena and it's just very, very telling. It's it, it was great. So I, I to recommend that. Really quick, I want to talk to the listeners for a moment. <laughs> um, Matt and I periodically have episodes where we get to pick the crime because the episode wasn't inspired by a specific incident. So if there are crimes or events or things out there that you want us to cover, please send us suggestions because we would love to hear them. And especially if there's something like Lorena Bobbitt or... Um, you know, Britney Spears, even where it's it was such a skewed narrative that is actually far more complicated than it was ever portrayed historically. So if you have any of those kinds of stories, we would love to cover them because I always appreciate learning more about things from the past. hundred percent. So, yeah, that's I, I, I second that emotion. <laughs> <laughs> well, should we get into the episode then? Let's do it. Okay, this is season three, episode seven of Law and Order, the original series, right? Mm. That's the right number. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. 
Uh, and the episode is titled Self Defense. All right. So the episode opens on a tow truck driver having a conversation over CB radio. And it's it's very much one of those law and order sort of just disconnected conversations that doesn't matter because it's like, I don't know, about babies or baby presents or a wife. I don't even know. The old ball and chain. The old ball nonsense. and chain, yeah, something. I feel like that's whenever they have cops or men on the opening scenes, it's always about the old ball and chain. Mm-hmm, yeah. So he pulls over to kind of, I guess, start towing a car that maybe is parked illegally, and that's where he was on his way to. It's been sitting there for too long. And when he goes up to the car, he sees the body of a man inside. So the cops arrive, and Soretta is speaking to the, like, of course, stereotypical neighbor of, like, the old woman with the tiny dog with, like, her (laughs) hair in curlers who hears everything in the neighborhood But she only heard, like, gunfire last night at around 9 o'clock and didn't really see anything. She says it's not a great neighborhood and, you know, you learn not to poke your nose into other people's business is kind of the impression that she gives. She's like uh, Gladys Kravitz on Bewitched. She's a little looky-loo out the window. Yeah, or (laughs) Agnes on WandaVision. Oh, yes, exactly. (laughs) Except she doesn't turn into an evil (laughs) supervillain. So... They think he, the based on this, they think the driver is probably shot on the street and climbed into his car based on, like, the injuries or the, you know, blood, I guess, on the street. Mm-hmm. And they see blood spots heading into another building, and somebody says, somebody sprung a leak. And <sighs> so they start tracking, you know, going down that path of blood, and they find another body. And Logan says, oh, yeah, a double hitter. (laughs) Great. So the man in the car, his name was Garland Booker. This man, they find his ID, and he is Cecil Booker. And so Logan's response is, someone's pruning the family tree. What? Where are we? Even is this dialogue? God. (laughs) So... We get the title sequence, and recently my sprinkler system has been damaged, and so I had to rip out all of the existing sprinkler system and reinstall a new drip irrigation system. And by the time I finished that, we were back to the episode. Looks like someone sprung a leak. (laughs) You know what's funny is I didn't even make that connection. (laughs) So... We're back at the station, and, uh, oh, they're, like, running through their list of, like, charges, because I guess they both had records, and Cragen says, these guys were brothers? And Soretta says, oh, yeah, chalk that one up for genetics. And I don't like this, because Mm -hmm. it basically, it's, like, pathologizing people and implying that, like, criminality is inherent to a person and not a factor of social inequality, but, you know, it's law and order, so they like to do that kind of thing. Right. We learned that both of them were killed with a 38. And so, of course, their first thought is like, maybe this was a drug deal gone bad. Um, because they do find a crack pipe in Cecil's pocket. And they're trying to track down leads, and they find out that the car that Garland was in is registered to a woman named Letitia Ramis. And so they go talk to her. She is Garland's girlfriend, I think. Um, she says that Garland didn't do drugs, that he had a job as a courier and was doing fine, doing good. And then Logan and Soretta like look inside the apartment and they see a television mm-hmm. and they're like basically assuming that Garland and this woman couldn't afford it because they're 
you know, I, I don't know, young black folks. And so they think about, they're like, oh, yeah, did this just kind of like fall off the truck when he was delivering it? So basically accusing them of stealing mm-hmm. for no reason. And she very correctly says, you always blame us first. And she points out that it was her boyfriend who got killed. And what we learn from her is that Cecil, the brother, owed Garland money and told Garland that he could pay him back through this connection uh, to a, from a man named Marvin Wells. And Garland didn't really know what was involved, but, you know, wanted his money back from Cecil. So it was like, okay. And can we just talk about what's on the TV? <laughs> Oh, I didn't even notice. What was it? She's, like, holding the baby. This is the scene where she's holding the baby, right? Yes. So you think maybe she'd be watching, like, a kid's show or something? Teletubbies, yeah. No, they have, like, a Run DMC video on. (laughs) Or some other kind of, like, hip-hop video or something. Because they really have to, like... Nail home that this is the house of a a black family. Yes. It's so ridiculous. So we go to speak to Marvin. And Marvin again, is a a drug dealer. And he says that Cecil owed him, owed everyone, and that uh, he and Cecil haven't worked together in a while because, quote, profits always had a way of going up in smoke with him around. That line, honestly, I actually kind of thought that one was okay. I feel like that is so overused, the up in smoke (laughs) reference. (laughs) Probably, but, you know, for Law and Order, I think that was good. Yeah, at the time. So he says that he wouldn't have killed Cecil because how would Cecil have repaid him if he was dead? So they're like, okay. And then we go to a scene at a dry cleaners in the same neighborhood as where the murders happened. And the owner there is like, oh, I closed at eight o'clock. I didn't see anything. And they're like, you didn't see the blue Ford parked literally in front of your dry cleaners that there was a body inside of? (laughs) He's like, nope, didn't see it. This uh, dry cleaner is a Asian man. And he says some things about black men and kind of paints them as a homogenous group of criminals. And then he's like, oh, and they go, oh, have you had problems with, you know, the young black man in your neighborhood? And he's like, no, just a solution. And shows them a gun at his waist. Now, are you allowed to just carry a gun on your waist in New York? Because I didn't think it was like an open carry state. I don't know. I would imagine it would have to be like, if you're a shop owner or something, it would have to be behind the counter, like in a holster. It's just like loose in his waist. It's not even in a holster or anything. He's literally like folding clothes and just flashes his gun at the cops. (laughs) (laughs) So they go and interview a jeweler who's nearby and they go in and... You know, they're like, this is, it smells like, did you repaint recently? Like, it smells really fresh paint in here. And Soretta notices, like, oh, this, you know, there's a lot of merchandise worth stealing in here. And, you know, Cecil had an armed robbery on his record. So they wonder, like, maybe his plan to get money was to rob this jewelry store. Mm-hmm. So they ask the owner about it. And they're like, do you have a gun? And he says, yes. And they ask what kind. And it's a 38. And so they ask to see it as well as the license for it or the permit for it. And he goes into the back room and brings out a gun uh, and the permit for it, which is registered to his girlfriend, Christine, um, because he just recently got his green card. And so you can't get uh, a weapon, I guess, or or a permit for a gun without being a citizen, I guess. Mm Mm-hmm. So they take his gun and leave, and we cut to ballistics expert, the uh, woman with the mullet. Um, oh, wait, no, not the woman with the mullet. The woman with 
endless scrunchies. Endless scrunchies, long hair, and a, a yes. devilish grin. <laughs> yes, very, very enthusiastic about ballistics. <laughs> she says that this gun is the right type, but the weapon or the bullets recovered don't match the gun. So, you know, they're kind of talking about it, and Logan's like, if this gun was for security, why would he have kept it in the back room and not under the counter near his alarm buzzer and all that kind of stuff? So they think that's a little weird. So they call the permit office for the gun and they try to see if there's anything else registered to the girlfriend's name. And in the next scene, they're back at the jeweler and we learn that that call to the gun permitting agency had found that she had another 38 registered under her name. But the jeweler, Mr. Costa, says, oh, yeah, no, we sold that gun. We don't have that one anymore. So they press him a little bit, and they're like, mm, did you see these men? Did they come in? Like, did they try to rob you? What's going on here? And he kind of says, okay, yes, like, they came in, they had guns, you know, they they shot at me, I shot back, and they take him down to the station to to interrogate him some more. So at the station, he says that he recognized one of the murdered men and that they had come in to look at, or that that man had come in to look at his jewelry before closing and like tried on a watch and was like, uh, you know, I'll come back for this later. And so when the two men came back later, they, you know, went into the store and and the entry point to the jewelry store has this like a security cage that he has to buzz people into. Mm-hmm. So he says he that he buzzed them in and suddenly they, you know, whipped out guns and started shooting at him and he shot back and then they ran outside and uh, they said, why didn't you call the cops? And he says, oh, you don't understand. And he brings up Bernie Getz, the mm. subway vigilante, Mm-hmm. and says that he was a hero and the police just put him away and so he was like afraid of losing everything and being deported because he had you know shot at these two men who were trying to rob him and that's why he didn't call the police hmm. right so they go to the store okay this is where i'm like how did this occur so remember he had like just freshly painted the office or the the store yeah and so they go to like check out the store to like look at the bullet holes from the gunfire and i don't understand how they did this but now the bullet holes are revealed like how would they have removed the fresh paint and identified where the holes were i guess because they saw where like spackle jobs had occurred and then they were able to like be like oh this is you know but they don't really explain that We just are back at the store and there's exposed holes in the wall all over the place. Yeah. So when they're looking at these bullet holes, they are kind of like, you know what? This story doesn't add up. And so from from the bullet holes, they're able to determine that Mr. Costas had never buzzed the men in, that all of the gunfire had been exchanged while the two men were inside of that security cage. So they're like, hmm... This sounds less like a robbery and more like he shot at these two men. So they bring him, they arrest him, they bring him up on two counts of murder in the second. Uh, He pleads not guilty. And his lawyer, by the way, is Ron Rifkin from Alias or Brothers and Sisters. Mm -hmm. So Stone thinks this case was not self-defense, that he had shot at the men before they threatened him. And that he shot them in the back when they were trying to run. And so they, through kind of investigation into his records, they find that there should have been a security camera installed in the store, 
But Logan and Soretta are like, we didn't see any cameras when we were investigating. So they track down the man who supposedly had sold him the camera, and he tells Stone and Robinette that the night of the murders, Mr. Costas had called him and asked him if he should get rid of the camera and the tape. Hmm. And this man advised Mr. Costas to take the camera down and talk to his lawyer. And he tells uh, Logan and Soretta that those people, they drove him to this. And Robinette is like, or sorry, he tells Robinette and Stone that. And Robinette says, uh, which people are you, mean? like, what do you mean? Yeah. And basically implying, like, you're generalizing uh, or stereotyping all black people, and that's not great. Right, and you're doing it right in front of me, and you don't right. think I'm going to call you on it? Think If he didn't, <laughs> I was going to be like, come on. Yeah. So Stone and Robinette get their hands on the tape, and when they watch it back, what we see is that Cecil and Garland, the two men who were killed, did have weapons in their hand, but Costas was the one who opened fire. And when they ran out the back or ran out the front door, he reloaded and chased after them onto the street. Mm. So this case is essentially boiling down to whether Mr. Costas's actions are self-defense or if it, if he committed murder. So they talk to his wife, Christine, and she says that her husband had kind of organized the local business owners to, like, all look after each other because it's not a great neighborhood. And so they wonder if maybe the other business owners had helped in the cover-up of this shootout, like the dry cleaners. Maybe they helped him repaint that night. They also find out that this wasn't the first time that Mr. Costas had been involved in a situation like this, that supposedly another quote-unquote self-defense situation had come up at a previous business he owned. And so he had kind of gotten this reputation as being like a local hero who defends his business against robbery and the, the local crime element. So Logan and Soretta are now kind of thinking maybe this wasn't self-defense and maybe this was intentional to kind of like build up his reputation in the neighborhood. And so again, they're doing analysis on the trajectory of the bullet wounds um, on Garland. And they see that the trajectory of the bullets was from below, like from the lower left hip up through the shoulder is where the exit wound is. So it shot from the back and from below, essentially. And so the only way that that makes sense is if Garland was inside of the car, like kind of bending over on the driver's seat to reach something on the floor of the passenger seat, and that Costas had shot him from behind while he was in that position reaching for something on the floor. Right. Um, there was nothing in the car besides uh, some stuff under the seat that was out of view and out of reach of both of them. And he was actually reaching for his car keys when he was shot in the back by Mr. Costas, we ultimately find. And, you know, adding to the argument of him having committed murder, not self-defense, is that he reloaded before chasing them out onto the street. So that kind of implies... Intent. You know, to... Intent, yeah. yeah, thank you. So they arrest him for the murder of Garland and Cecil Booker. And in the next scene, we discover that Costas's lawyer has released the security footage to the news, and the news is kind of running this as a story of, like, a man defending his business against robbers. And so Stone and Robinette are like, fuck, you know, this really is going to make our case hard. We're going to have a hard time finding an unbiased jury, um, and we'll have a hard time making a, a case stick against somebody who the public is sort of thinking a, is a hero, essentially. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, they do decide to go to trial, 
And in the court, Logan is on the stand talking about how both of the bookers were retreating from the store when Costas began firing at them. And they talk about the trajectory of the wounds that they had, which implied that he shot Garland Booker in the back. And the defense is kind of able to uh, undermine this a bit. And so we get another scene where Stone and Robinette and D.A. Schiff are kind of talking about the case. And we get a Schiff platitude moment Mm -hmm. where he says, you always think you have a smoking gun till the smoke blows in your face. God. Not bad, right? It was pretty good. Okay. (laughs) So Costas's lawyer pulls a sneaky move and subpoenas Soretta to uh, put him on the stand. And we learn that Soretta has been, uh, has served as an expert witness in 19 cases about uh, police shooting their weapons and whether or not the discharging of the weapon was justified. And when they look at Soretta's kind of track record of serving as an expert witness in all 19 of those cases, he found that the police discharging the weapon was justified. And so they're hoping that by putting him on the stand, he can sort of undermine the state's case by, you know, arguing why he would have discharged his weapon and saying it's justified. Mm -hmm. So they get him on the stand and they ask him if they think based on the tape, only on the tape, because they don't want him talking about the street, Based only on the tape, were these actions justified? Was deadly force justified? And Soretta says that yes, they were. And when Stone cross-examines, he asks, how many times, Soretta, have you discharged your weapon? And Soretta says that he has never discharged his weapon. And Stone says, what if you were, what if you saw someone reaching for something in their car? Would you shoot them then? And he, and Soretta says, I would not have shot until I saw that they were holding a weapon. So, the defense's strategy of getting Soretta on the stand actually kind of backfires and supports the the prosecution's case that this was murder, not self-defense. Right. Stone also asks Soretta, what would you do if you saw a man running down the street with a gun in his hand, like Mr. Costas was doing? And he says he probably would have arrested him. And then he asks, what would you do if your son was at home, lying all alone on the bedroom floor because he's hungry? And the only way to feed him <laughs> is to sleep... <laughs> do you know that song? <laughs> I is that Shaggy? No, it's City High. Oh, I was thinking of lying on the bathroom oh. or something. Lying on the bathroom. It wasn't me. Floor. It wasn't me. Yes. So, um, ultimately, the jury finds Mr. Costas not guilty of the murder of Cecil Booker, who was shot in his store during the quote-unquote attempted robbery, but they find him guilty for the murder of Garland Booker, who he shot in in the back while he was in his car reaching for his keys. And that is the conclusion of episode seven, Self-Defense. Mm, well done. Thank you. I, I'm sh- we'll talk about the episode later, but I'm curious to know what crime this was based off of. Well, it's actually pretty interesting because according to the internet, this crime was also based on the Bernie Getz subway shooting. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. So I, and listeners, if you don't already know, we already covered this case in season one, episode two of our show, because yes. season one, episode two of Law and Order was more directly related to that one. So if you haven't listened, yeah. go back season one, episode two, quick little plug. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, so I chose a different case that I actually think in my research of it mirrors this case a little more even. Okay, great. 
So, this is going to be about the story of Latasha Harlins. Okay. Are you familiar? No. Okay. Latasha Harlins was born July 14th, 1975 in East St. Louis, Illinois. Okay. And her parents were Crystal Harlins and Sylvester Acoff. Most of okay. uh, his friends called him Vester, so... Uh, okay. Latasha was, it's not really important except for one other detail later, but. Okay. So Latasha was the oldest of three. She, um, her parents later had her little brother, Vester Acoff Jr. and her sister, Christina. Um, that's the only reason it's important because there's a Vester Acoff Jr. not to be confused with Vester Acoff Sr. Okay. The family moved to South Central LA in 1981 when Latasha was six years old. And Vester Sr. was known to be a pretty violent man. Um, And the marriage between him and Crystal ends in 1983. So now, Crystal is raising all three of her children on her own. The father, Vester Sr., sort of disappears out of the picture. um, Until, on November 27, 1985, Crystal was at an L.A. nightclub... And unfortunately, she is shot and killed by her ex-husband Vester's current girlfriend at the time. Eek, okay. So Cora May Anderson is the name of the person who ends up murdering Crystal in the nightclub. Um, there's very little about that crime, but um, all I could really find out was that it seems that Crystal was only 26 at the time. Yikes. Which is, tra- I mean, it's tragic no matter what, but... Right. Um, So at the time, Latasha is 10 years old when she loses her mother. Okay. Immediately after this, Latasha's maternal grandmother, Ruth, takes all three kids in and raises them on her own. Okay. Latasha, being the oldest of the three, even though she's just 10, she takes on a lot of the responsibilities of the day-to-day, you know, runnings of the house, and she helps to take care of both of her little siblings, keeps them Mm -hmm. out of trouble, keeps them entertained... And she does all of this while still being a bright, happy child herself. Her cousin, Cherise, spends a lot of time with them as well. She's sort of like a fourth member of the family almost. Um, To her, her cousins are like her siblings. So she recounts in a documentary film called uh, A Love Song for Latasha, which is Mm -hmm. by Sophia Nali Allison. It's on Netflix. Mm -hmm. Highly recommend it. It's beautiful. It's on Netflix? Mm Mm-hmm. What's it called? A Love Song for Latasha. Okay. It came out in 2019. I'll talk about it a lot in here. It is it is beautiful, and I can't say enough about it. So um, in the documentary, her cousin recounts how when they were younger, her and Latasha would get $2 or $3 a day allowance from their grandma. And every day after school, they would save up and go to Tam's Burgers and get Hmm. fries together, and they would play Stand By Me every day. It was, like, what they looked forward to. The song? Mm Mm-hmm. So they went to, like, a burger joint and played stuff on the jukebox? Yeah. Isn't that adorable? That's so cute. I love that. And that was, like, their, their, like, sort of routine. Every day they'd take the bus home, and they'd stop at the Tam's Burgers and just... Look forward to putting a quarter in and listening to Stand By Me and just, you know, hanging out after school. That's cute. I know. I love that detail. Although I feel like if I worked at that that diner and I was like, oh my God, <laughs> if I have to listen to Stand By Me one more fucking time. You know, it was probably, it was new at the time. So it was probably okay. like exciting, you know? 
Um, Latasha was an excellent student, and she worked really hard in school. She went to Westchester High School, which was a magnet school in the L.A. Unified School District. Still around. Okay. Latasha wanted to be a lawyer when she grew up, and Mm -hmm. she knew how important it was for her to get into college if she wanted to achieve this. And she was doing great. She was a straight-A student, and she had a challenging curriculum, and... Not only was this impressive for her to be getting straight A's because it's a challenging school, it's a magnet school, and the classes are aimed to like push their students to their full potential, but mm-hmm. she's also like a child helping to take care of her siblings and you know mourning the loss of her mother, right? At the same time, so really accomplished young young lady. Right, like doing any one of those three things is hard enough, let alone all of them. A hundred percent. Like there, there would be no one faulting a child for having issues in school. No, <laughs> for, for with any of the circumstances going on in her life, but right. She would talk about her mom to friends and to her cousin and how she missed her. She also would talk about how she didn't want to become a statistic and that the loss of her mother seemed to really push her towards greatness in in her honor. Hmm. One lesson that I've seen that Latasha would tell her friends that she learned from her mother, um, I think it shows a little bit about her worldview at the time, so I want to share it. Um, She would say to her her friends, we queens, and the only way we're going to get treated like queens is if we carry ourselves that way. Oh, I think that's beautiful. Yeah, I love that. I think it shows a lot of fortitude and grace in such a young person in general to have that kind of perspective and, and view on life given her circumstances, especially. Any, anyone, yeah. really. Latasha also had a passion for giving back to her community, particularly to young black children like herself. And she'd say that when she grew up, that her day job would probably be being a lawyer. But she wanted to own businesses so that they could have something where kids like her can be and feel comfortable going without being treated mm-hmm. badly. Mm-hmm. She was aware of her color and accepted it, as according to her friends, and she was very aware of how being black made her a target in her neighborhood. She was used to going into stores and being followed around, and in the documentary and in some of the articles that I read, there are stories that her community tells about how they would enter businesses and just expect some sort of aggression every time they went in. They just weren't sure mm-hmm. of what it would specifically be, but they knew that wherever they would go, they were going to be targets of some sort of aggression. Okay. She wanted to grow up and create safe spaces for people who felt that way, and she also wanted to create after-school programs with activities, specifically basketball, because that's also something that she loved. Mm-hmm. On Saturday, March 16th, 1991, her grandmother had asked some of the kids at the house to go get some orange juice from the corner store. No one wanted to go. You know, who wants to run out to the store <laughs> in the morning on Saturday? Right. So eventually, Latasha agreed And shortly before 10 a.m., she leaves the house and goes to the corner store, which was called Empire Liquor. She goes to the store, and she goes to the refrigerator section and grabs a $1.79-priced bottle of orange juice from the fridge and takes out $2 in her hand. And she places the orange juice sticking out of her backpack and approaches the counter, where store owner Soon Ja Du was working. And the store owner accuses Latasha of stealing. Latasha says she's not stealing, and while accounts will vary of what happened, there were two eyewitnesses and video surveillance footage of the event. So there's really not much to be disputed. Okay. 
uh, Miss Soon did not see the money in her hand and grabs Latasha by her shoulder or by her hair, it's a little unclear in the video, and pulls her over the counter and grabs at her backpack. Oh my god. So she's still on her, they're each on their side of the counter, but she's like literally like yanking her, yanking over. her over the, trying to yank her over the counter to get to the backpack. Ugh, okay. Latasha strikes Soon in the head four times, and uh, Miss Soon falls back and gets back up and grabs the backpack again, tossing it behind the counter. She gets it from Latasha. <laughs> she then picks up a stool, tossing it over at Latasha, who dodges it. Latasha reaches down on the ground for the orange juice that fell out of the backpack because it was just mm-hmm. hanging out of it, and she places it on the counter. Soon grabs a gun and stands up with it holstered, struggling to free it from the holster. She then swats the orange juice that she had put on the counter, that Latasha had put on the counter away, and Latasha just turns and begins walking out of the store. Soon shoots her from three feet away in the back of the head, and Latasha Harlins falls down. Oh, God. Soon then looks over the counter and sees her lying there, and soon after, her husband who usually maintains and runs the store, comes in from sleeping outside. He was in his car sleeping, taking a break, I guess. And she tells him to call the police because she was being robbed. He does this, and then when they arrive, Latasha was pronounced dead at the scene at 15 years old. Ugh, terrible. It's really terrible, and it's on video surveillance, and I watched a lot of reports of this, so I've seen the video multiple times, and it's, it's terrible. It's terrible. Yeah. Many reports claim that Sh- Soon Jadu rarely worked at the store, but it comes out that she was there with her husband, Bill, every weekend, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. She was helping whenever she could, and she worked at one of their other stores that they owned on the weekdays. Okay. So it's worth mentioning that the Du family had faced death threats previously in at this particular store um, mm. from the local Crips gang. Okay. Um, their eldest son had previously agreed with the DA's office to testify against two of the gang members, and they had faced a lot of retaliation around that time. Yeah. This is a quote. When interviewed by Patricia Dwyer, a European-American probation officer, Dew admitted that she was afraid of African-Americans and did not respect them. She said, They look healthy, young. Big question. Why they don't work? got welfare money and buying alcoholic beverages and consuming them instead of feeding their children. Dew concluded that it was their way of living. Now, at this time, just two weeks before this event, another event took place that rocked the nation. On March 3rd, 1991, again, this is just 13 days prior, Rodney King was brutally beaten by police officers, and the whole thing, unbeknownst to them, was caught on camera and shown to the whole world. Yep. In addition to both of these senseless and racially motivated crimes, the subsequent outcomes of each of these trials are what most feel are the catalysts of the 1992 L.A. riots. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you the timeline on these things as they sort of unfold. Okay. I did go down a little bit of a rabbit hole here, and (laughs) I'm going to go down it again more deliberately with more attention to detail and more intention, I guess, um, because I, I don't know a ton about the... Rodney King attack, and mm-hmm. I know even less about the LA riots. Um, but there's there's so much to cover there. So 
I think they're worth, if we do ever go into those, they're worth their own episode. So I'm not going to go too into those. I'm going to focus yeah. on Latasha's yeah. case. I'm betting that we will get a Rodney King-inspired episode. I'm sure. Pretty soon on SVU, because what year was that? Like, 93? That's this, that's, um, 91. 91. Okay, so, huh, it's surpri- almost surprising they haven't done it yet, because yeah. I think... I think we're probably in 1991 or 1992 of Law and Order right now. Yeah, I think 91 is the the attack on Rodney King, and 92 is the trial. So got it. Okay. Mrs. Dew was charged with first degree murder, which could hold a 16 life. To, oh, I'm sorry, which could hold a 16 year to life sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, she pleads not guilty, and she's released on two hundred fifty thousand dollar bail, awaiting trial. The trial would originally be set for July 19th, 1991, but it got postponed because the defense wanted to have it moved from Compton, where they felt like a fair trial wouldn't be possible because it got a lot of coverage. Yeah. So this was granted, and they chose a—the two sides, prosecution and defense, chose a downtown L.A. courtroom with a new trial date set of September 30th, 1991. Okay. The trial takes place, and it lasts for four days. Um, the videotape was played repeatedly in the trial as key evidence, as well as the testimony of Lakeisha Combs and her brother Ismali Ali, who were eyewitnesses. Mm. Um, on the tape, you could see them walking around the store as well. So they had a, you could see that they were in direct view of, of what happened. So Four days seems like a very short trial. Yeah. Doesn't I, it? I agree. I mean, I think it's the evidence kind of speaks for itself, but... Yeah, I, guess, I, yeah. I agree. For such a for such a tragic and heinous case, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So Ismali Ali testifies. Um, this is quotes from the trial. This is the younger boy who witnessed it. Okay. He says, This girl walked into the store and she went straight to the Jew section. And then he begins to recreate the events. He says she didn't go nowhere else and came straight up to the counter and was going to pay for it, the juice. And she had it in her backpack where you could see it. And the Oriental lady started pulling on her shirt, her sweater, and telling her, that's my orange juice, and kept pulling at it. And the girl said she was going to pay for it. And the girl was telling her, let her go, but she wouldn't. His sister then got on the stand and gives a, a very similar account, repeating that Latasha kept saying she would pay for the orange juice. And the woman kept saying, are you stealing my orange juice? Are you stealing my things? And she kept saying she wasn't and that she was going to pay for it and that she had two dollars mm-hmm. in her hands the whole time. When they found Latasha's body, actually, she still had the two dollars in her hand. <sighs> you could see the two dollars in her hand actually on the surveillance photo video as well. Mm-hmm. You could see it very clearly. She also says in her testimony that when Latasha was leaving, when she was going to leave, she hadn't been arguing anymore. The two women, the the woman and the young girl were arguing back and forth and, you know, calling each other the B word and all sorts of things, of course, when the the fight was happening. But when she was leaving, she wasn't saying anything. She was just walking out of the store. She left the orange juice behind and everything. And you could see on the video her demeanor when she's, like, standing there as... Sue is going for the gun. She's just standing there, and she very calmly is turns and walks to walk away. Dew would take the stand, saying she was fearing for her life and that she grabbed the gun to protect herself, and she didn't even really know how to use it. She was unaware, and a lot of the other people who were interviewed on the stand, you know, 
affirmed that she'd never used a gun before. She, they would have no idea if she'd even know how to use it. Do claims that the gun went off on accident. And it was her state of fear that made all this happen and that all of the fear was predicated by the terror that she suffered at the hands of other black folks in the neighborhood who had been targeting her store previously. Hmm. They ask her, or the one of the... I guess the defense asks her, or one of the attorneys asks her why she got the gun in the first place. And she said, quote, because I was beaten too severely and I was in great shock. And she told me later she was going to kill me. Which neither of the kids said they heard. Correct. Okay. Did the, just out of curiosity, did the camera have audio or just video? Just video. Okay. Her son, Joseph, uh, Jadu's son, would also testify to the store being burglarized at least 14 times that they had reported to police and over 40 times in total in one week where they were too afraid to report. Hmm. In many of these events, the assailants would flaunt their guns when they came in, they would threaten their lives, and threaten to burn down the store if they said anything. (laughs) He said that he would talk to his mother about all of these events every day, and she corroborates this by saying that she thought Latasha was a gang member. And when the fifteen-year-old girl, correct. Okay. And when asked why would you think she was a gang member on the stand, she says, "Quote: Yes, because I asked my son how do gang members in America look, and he told me he was getting continually threatened. So I asked him to describe what they look like because I have to be careful when they come in. And when she came at me with that iron-like fist, what I heard from my son and her description dressed." Was and her just and her description, her dress. She was dressed similar, and that's what I thought. Okay. She's just dressed like a, a a young girl. But when she came at me with that iron fist, you grabbed her first, lady. Correct, and she <laughs> she was fighting to get her off of her. Right, she was defending herself from being assaulted by this adult woman. Mm-hmm. And okay. to speak on terror. I wanted to share what Latasha's best friend, Ty, talks about in that documentary. Okay. So she's talking about the the surveillance video that was played on the news all the time. Yeah. Over and over again. Did did the news, like, show the part where she is shot and killed? Yes. God. Okay. Ty says, I never knew what terror was until I saw it. And they kept playing that video over and over. And then she goes on in the documentary to talk about how she remembers an incident when she was in that exact store week, mm-hmm. weeks beforehand uh, with her mother. And, you know, they had bought some candy bars and they had left. And then her mother said, oh, can you go grab one more? And she gave her some money. Mm-hmm. And so she goes back into the store with the money and she's at the, at the corner. She picks up a candy bar and she's looking down, counting her money. And she hears someone else in the store shouting, no, no, she's going to pay for it. Don't worry, she's going to pay for it. And when she looks up, Soon is standing there with her gun out, pointing it at her. And she describes looking up and being confronted by the barrel of a gun. And then Uh. her mother running in and saying, no, she's going to pay for it. She's going to pay for it. You don't have to do this. She's going to pay for it. So I'm sorry. So let me just make sure I got this right. This young girl Mm -hmm. goes in to get another candy bar is has like set the candy bar on the counter to get her money out. And when 
and she hears somebody say, no, she's going to pay for it. And when she looks up, the woman who shot Latasha is pointing a gun at her face. But, yes, but this is weeks earlier. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yes, okay. And and the thing about it that she when she's describing this story is she says that, like, her mom came in and was defending her, not outwardly saying to her, like, this is outrageous that you're holding a gun. She's trying to explain to her, you don't have to do this because we're going to pay for it. And she explains that it's because people in her neighborhood just got used to this. This is just what they got used to, that this was what was going to happen. Something was going to happen to you when you went to to the store or to many places in this neighborhood just by virtue of being black. And that it was so something they got used to so much that it was like she was going in and explaining to this woman, like pleading with her not to have her gun out rather you know what i mean like right it right was like something that oh was don't normal. worry like it's fine yeah you can put it away yeah right and then in the privacy of the car when they leave she tells her we're never going to that store again and you never get to go to that store again smart and she tells on the documentary that she talked to latasha about this and she talked to her and said her mom doesn't want her to go to that store anymore because it's close to latasha's house so she knew it was one that she went to and yeah. she feels like this very conflicting feeling about that like why did she go to the store and it's just because it was just something they got used to and i think that is just heartbreaking yeah so the jury deliberates for three and a half days after the trial um and they find soon jadu guilty of voluntary manslaughter not murder not murder Hmm. they find her guilty of this on october 11th And this could hold a sentence of a maximum of 16 years in prison. Okay. On November 15th, 1991, Judge Joyce Carlin gave her five years of probation, 400 hours of community service, and a $500 fine. For murdering a Mm 15-year-old girl. No jail time. (sighs) She had previously, just recently before that, given someone in Glendale... A harsher sentence for kicking a dog. The judge firmly doubles down on this. She says of her decision things like, quote, This is not a time for revenge, and no matter what sentence this court imposes, Mrs. Dew will be punished every day for the rest of her life. She says, Justice has never served when public opinion, prejudice, revenge, or unwarranted sympathy are considered by the sentencing court in attempting to resolve the case. I'm sorry, unwarranted sympathy, like thinking, like literally what you just said about how she'll suffer the rest of her life for this? Unbelievable. And she goes, that is it gets, out of control. It gets worse. Great. In an interview after this with the LA Sentinel, a reporter asks, what is your feeling about victims' rights? You seem to be a little more concerned with the defendant than Latasha Harlan's. And her response is, I have to be. It's not a little bit more. I have to deal with the things before me. Victims' rights take on all sorts of things. I feel very, very strong about victims' rights. But those are victims who are here. Victims for whom something can be done. Victims who have their rights, their needs, and they need the system to protect them and to work with them. Victims who have competing interests. I have to go with who I can look at who's before me in the court. Wow. So the victim she's concerned about is the person who shot and killed a 15-year-old girl for buying orange right. juice. Right. She remains a judge until 1997, 
Um, and then she voluntarily steps down and starts working in local politics. And she now goes by her husband's last name uh, of Fahey. Um, okay. While the decision's always been controversial, she's never wavered from it publicly. Hmm. Ever. She's always maintained that what she did was correct and she believes in it and to this day. Okay. When the sentencing was appealed, the California Court of Appeals upheld the conviction three to zero on April twenty first, nineteen ninety two. Wow. One week later, on April 29th, nineteen ninety two, a jury acquitted all four officers of assault and three of them an excessive force in the Rodney King case. <laughs> These events were immediately followed by the nineteen ninety two LA riots. Mm-hmm. And during them Dew's store was firebombed. Um, during the events that unfolded during the riots. So a lot of, most people say that Latasha Harlan's murder was the first event that led to the LA riots. Um, And unfortunately, her story was eclipsed by what happened terribly to Rodney King. So a lot of people don't even know about it, even to this day, 30 years later. Um, as I said, um, Latasha's story has been largely eclipsed for decades by all of this. Um, but some, there are a lot of, there has been a lot of representation for her, and a lot of people have worked to keep her name alive and her legacy alive. Mm-hmm. Um, Tupac dedicated his song "Keep Your Head Up" to her, and he's continued to mention her in many of his music that followed. Other artists like Ice Cube have composed songs for her. The author Sapphire wrote a poem called Strange Juice or the Murder of Latasha Harlins, and it's featured in her book American Dream. Mm-hmm. There's that documentary that I've mentioned a few times, The Love Song for Latasha. It came out in 2019. It's on Netflix. Um, it was nominated for an Academy Award in 2021. I think everyone who listens to this just should watch it because it's just beautiful. Um, okay. In... 1998, the California State Assembly named April 29th as Latasha Harlan's day. In 2021, the playground where Latasha and her cousin spent their days, which is on the side of Algin Sutton Recreation Center, was named after her and dedicated to Mm -hmm. Latasha. That's awesome. And artist Victoria Casanova lobbied for weeks and finally got approval this year to create a huge mural there honoring Latasha. And it's complete now, and it's really beautiful you could see pictures of it online that's awesome her aunt denise became a huge advocate after latasha's death on her behalf and she had never even known anything about politics or anything like that before this and she formed the latasha harlan's justice justice committee to overturn the sentence and recall the judge and um, while these efforts did not get the desired results she definitely sparked a lot of change in the process and became a really powerful activist in her neighborhood. And mm-hmm. she kept the memory and story of Latasha alive for, for decades. Wow. She passed away in 2018, and her dear friend and fellow community activist, Najee Ali, said, Harlins became a staunch activist who led the protests demanding justice for her murdered niece and continued to speak out against gun violence, violence against children, and calling her racial unity. I lost a dear friend and a fellow activist. Denise represented the best of South Central. Latasha's brother and sister were awarded $300,000 from the Dew family in a settlement on a multi-million dollar lawsuit in 1992. 
Um, the lawsuit was for wrongful death and intentional and negligent killing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they get a, a, a tiny, small grain of justice to yeah. hold on to, the smallest bit. Yeah. And in the documentary, Ty, who was Latasha's best friend, speaks and says of Latasha, I know she'd be married by now if she was still here, and she'd be an awesome mother, and if she'd probably have multiple children, and if any of them were a girl, I know she'd be riding her. <laughs> and she talks about all the things that, that they would have been doing if she were here. And she says that, yeah. you know, they had always talked about being lawyers together and opening these businesses and working for community outreach, even at that young age. And she's, she says she doesn't do a lot of that now, but she knows if Latasha was alive that she would have. Yeah. And then I just want to conclude with a poem by Latasha. And it was written on February 6th, 1991, just a month before she was killed at 15 years old. Okay. I'm going to try not to cry because <laughs> I'm already <laughs> very emotional with this one. But yeah, this is by Latasha, a 15-year-old girl, and it's called Latasha's Shield. I am very reliable and trustworthy, honest. I like that I am confident about myself. I have a lot of talent, and I know whatever I set my mind on something, I'm going to accomplish it. I show people that I care by giving what I have to people who actually need it. I also show I care by showing respect to all adults and ones my age and younger. I know I care. What I want most in life is to fulfill my goal of being an attorney and also to graduate from high school with an almost perfect GPA to go to college. The most important thing to me is my family, is that they're always protected by a shield so they won't be harmed by dangerous, ruthless, uncaring people. If I had one wish, it would be to get my mother back to me. Three descriptive words my friends would say, and probably give me, are caring, sharing, and very polite to others. That's by Latasha Harlins on February 6th, 1991, just one month before she was tragically killed. And that's that's what I got for Latasha Harlins. Dang. That is awful. <laughs> I my heart just like I don't even like I can't even fathom this. Yeah. Fifteen years old. Correct me. The woman her conviction or her sentence was overturned, so she she didn't have to do anything. She her her sentence Nothing was overturned. She just got a sentence of probation and a five hundred dollar oh, right. fine and and uh community service. And she's disgusting. She's, you know, out living her life today. And, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for the Korean American communities and the black communities at this time down there in LA yeah. because I think they, from what I read in the little bit of research I did after this, it just looks like they were pitted against each other, mm-hmm. you know, by white people and by police yep. and they were put in a neighborhood and they were made to feel like they were each other's enemy. Yep. And it was just like a cycle, you know, like the Korean store owners in the area felt victimized by the black folks in the area. Right. And the black folks in the area felt targeted and discriminated against by the 
Korean-American folks who are running their stores. Right. And I have a lot of sympathy for these people who weren't each other's enemies, but who became each other's enemies because of a narrative that was pushed on them that ends up, they ended up falling into place and just playing the parts for decades. And I mean, what happened afterwards and with the LA riots, you could see how this all exploded. And I don't doubt what happened to their store by other people before this 15-year-old girl went in there. Sure, yeah. But that that is no reason to take out your aggression and fear on anybody, let alone on a 15-year-old child, let alone with a gun, with a gun. Who is walking away. With And even if you thought she was stealing an orange juice, it was $1.79. Right. A dollar seventy nine, and you whipped out a gun on a fifteen year old girl unarmed, and in yeah. in the court hearing, there was parts where they mentioned like you know she was unarmed, Latasha was unarmed, and the judge afterwards in interviews said, you know she wasn't armed, but she used her fists as a weapon against her. The judge said that. Yes, yes, fuck in the guy. interview, her that girl. Or fuck her. That's right. I'm. I just. I can't even imagine what an impossible situation. All of these people lived in down there. And then for this girl, so full of promise with all of these great intentions. And it's not just like people said, oh, she was a great girl. Like, look at her own words and her own, like, poetry and writings of her dreams of what she really wanted to to create safe spaces in her neighborhood for people. Yeah. I just, it's just really terrible and i had no i'd never heard of her name i'd never heard of latasha harlins in my life i've never heard of her name as you told the story it sounded more and more familiar and i kind of think that i recall reading the reading about this story in one of my like college classes where we talked about sort of the pitting against of the black community and the asian american community in the united states and how that's like a function of white supremacy to keep groups fight in fighting so that they don't, you know, uh, join forces against their oppressor. Right. Um, and so as you were telling the story, I was thinking, I think I do recall reading this story in one of those classes because it is just such a perfect example of how much the sort of like model minority myth of Asian Americans is used as like a weapon against other races and allows for us to like ignore the racism against Asian Americans. And so it's just this big snarled mess that that really does pit two folks against each other and and has really deadly consequences. Yeah. And so. and look at us 30 years later. Still doing and it. And what's still happening. Where, yep. You know, black people are being killed on camera, on video, yep. where you see it. And it's even a question. It's even a question of what kind of world we're living in and what kind of world yep. we've created that we continue to support and live in. It's yep. 30 years later. And the only... There's a lot of um, recent articles that are coming out about Latasha Harlins um, because mm-hmm. of the mural, because of the 30th year um i think anniversary and the um the park being uh dedicated and the documentary that came out that just got nominated for the academy award this year so there's a lot of recent things you can read where her sister speaks out and her brother and her cousins and her community speak out on her behalf and have beautiful things to say 
And they say that, you know, while look at where we are now still, they do have a lot of hope with, you know, we need to continue the conversation and continue the fight and continue supporting the Black Lives Matter movement. And Mm -hmm. to, you know, that if this had happened today, who knows what the outcome would have been. But with social media, at least, and with the, the way people are looking at things now... Yeah. And with a lot of the stigma changing, at mm-hmm. least there would have been outrage now. And they, they yeah. there wasn't outrage then. I mean, it, it was a story on the news for people. Yeah, yeah. Even the showing of the, um, the surveillance video in court, a lot of people think that it was shown so much in court that it desensitized the jury to it. Oh, I think they mentioned that in this episode, too, actually, when they were talking about the footage of him shooting at the two men supposedly robbing his store. Like, Schiff mentioned, like, you play it once, they see this. You play it second time, they see this. And then it, like, kind of incre- exactly. increasingly desensitizes or or makes it, the impact is significantly lessened. Yeah. You know? As I watched the episode, I was like, wow, I'm really glad I chose this. I'm glad I chose this anyway, but I'm really glad I chose this one because I feel like it has way more parallels to this story. Especially, yeah. you know, when you were talking about the guy who just had the gun on his holster, like, oh, yeah, this is how I handle the situation. And he just had the gun there. Like, right. that is just exactly how this feels, you know? So, yep. um, yeah, I mean, on that, how, how would you uh, rate this episode? Um, For watchability, I'm going to say a D plus. Like, it just wasn't... It just wasn't interesting. Like, it was kind of a boring episode, I think. As far... Yeah, sorry. And what about you for watchability? I agree. I found it, like, it wasn't bad. Um, It just, it was... Not it did it wasn't as compelling and I found like they jumped around a lot at the beginning yes. before they got to the, even the jewelry store guy. And I was yeah. like, what was the point of all this? So yeah, I'll give it a D plus well, too. And like there was no likable character in the oh, whole episode. No. Like you didn't you didn't feel sympathy for anyone. No. I mean, besides the men who were murdered, but you didn't never got to meet them. Yeah, so Yeah, same. I agree. Um and for how it dealt with the topic, um, let's see. I don't think it did great so i'm gonna give it a d plus for that as well (laughs) yeah i'll give it i'll give it a plain d i'll give it a regular d rather than a d plus or d minus well great job sorry that was such a intense thing to have to research no and thank you i'm glad i got the opportunity to research about it because i really didn't know anything about her and i'm glad i got to know her through that through doing the research on this and i hope that those who listen to this episode get a chance to get to know her through my telling of it and i highly encourage you if nothing else just go watch that documentary on netflix called a love song for latasha because it it, it's just beautiful it's just a beautiful dedication i'm just grateful that it, it exists and i'm i'm grateful that i had the chance to do this and i i think there's so much more i probably could have Done, and I hope I did this justice. If anybody is a listener out there and you have any information or any sort of um, factual corrections or um, things that you thought should be included, please reach out to us. Let us know. I'd love to feature it in a a later episode. Yeah. Um, Well, and like I said, I imagine that we will be getting a um, Rodney King King episode at some point, so we'll probably be able to come back and talk about this a little bit more. Yeah. All right, folks. 
Ripped from the Headlines is an indie podcast, and if you enjoy listening to us and think other folks might too, the best thing you could do is to rate and review our podcast on the platform that you use to listen to our episodes, because that's really what helps other people find us. That's right. And if you could do something like tell a friend who might be interested, mm-hmm. word of mouth is huge. We would really appreciate that. And we love connecting with our listeners, so feel free to send us an email at rippedheadlinespod.com. And you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Ripped Headlines. Also, while you're on the internets, don't forget to check out RippedHeadlinesPod.com. In there, you will find a link to our Patreon, where we monthly cover SVU episodes and do cool fashion court episodes where we uh, rip apart the fashion choices <laughs> of Law & Order. So I think you would all enjoy that if you enjoy the show. That's right. Our most recent episode of our bonus episodes on Patreon is about the case of Ramona Moore. Definitely check that one out. And just before that was the case of uh, the abduction of J.C. Lee Duggard. Oh, you are missing out if you're not on our Patreon. (laughs) Really, truly. And speaking of our Patreon, a percentage of our proceeds from it get donated to the Equal Justice Initiative. So by supporting us, you're also supporting positive change in the world. Thank you so much for listening to Rip from the Headlines, where you get the facts and some fiction. And we'll see you next week. Until then, stay out of the headlines. Bye. Bye.